0: Welcome to Let's Talk Compliance, a special healthcare law today podcast series presented by Foley and Lardner and PYA. I'm your co-host, Anna Kalarek, partner of Foley's Healthcare Practice Group,
1: and I'm your other co-host, Angie Caldwell, consulting principal at PYA. We are excited to announce the Let's Talk Compliance podcast series, where each episode a Foley attorney and a PYA advisor will address hot compliance topics.
0: So, before we begin our show, we want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit healthcarelawtoday, alloneword.com, or pyapc.com. So, today, Angie and I are actually going to be presenting, and we're going to be talking about subsidies. So, Angie, you and I have had, gosh, I can't countless discussions about subsidy arrangements between hospitals healthcare systems and, and physician practices you know i'm going to do a little bit of a foundational discussion and i welcome your thoughts just even on this foundational discussion really thinking through a subsidy should be in part looking at you know what is commercially reasonable what have we seen you know what have we seen i think experientially in the market What are the other alternatives? Because subsidizing a physician practice can create issues under the fraud and abuse laws, under the Stark law, and under the anti-kickback, federal anti-kickback statute in particular. So really, let's dig in a little bit. Let's dig into kind of what we're seeing, what you're seeing, what we've seen in the past, for example, and then kind of what are areas of increased Subsidies, and where are we seeing things that are somewhat unusual that may deserve some additional attention? Why don't you kind of give us some of the specialties that you've seen just in the past and and what you're seeing is hot right now.
1: Yeah, and and I think Jana too, what drew us to this topic specifically is that this, this topic isn't new. It's just that we are seeing more activity in the space. We're seeing increased subsidy amounts, and because of the increased subsidy amounts, more questions have arisen as to the nature of the arrangement, the why behind the arrangement, and in some cases, does the continued arrangement still make sense and because the this type of arrangement has been out there for a while people are now asking the question for new specialties should we should we try a subsidy or a financial assistance arrangement for some other type of specialty it's worked so well for these for these others in the past and so i think that's something that drew our attention to this really to talk about and frame up the the hot topics around subsidies. So to your question, what specialties do we normally see that receive this financial assistance? Anesthesia, emergency medicine, hospitalist, uh, critical care and trauma surgery, just to name a few. But generally your hospital-based specialties are most likely to receive a, a subsidy. And of course, there are many reasons for that. Um, the primary one being that professional collections generally don't cover the costs uh, of the practice, particularly one of the largest costs being the, the fair market value compensation for the physicians. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And one of the things, you know, I I didn't blink or think twice frankly, you know, I have been dealing with subsidies during my career, which, you know, is 20 plus years in the, in the emergency medicine space, right? So having, because it's a 24-7 concept, because frankly, um, it's a difficult line of business to manage effectively um, from a staffing perspective, and it's needed, right? You can't live you can't work without your emergency department if you're if you're sort of a typical hospital shall we say then you know some of those practices because of mtala concerns because they are treating any patient or stabilizing patients that come through the door there is you know frequently a gap in exactly what you said in that cost Issue. They have to cover the cost for the for the staffing. They've got to cover the cost to have the people there to do it. And it amounts to or results in a much more, shall I say, intimate relationship and from a financial perspective between the practice and the hospital or health system because you really at that point in time, when you're saying, look, we cannot cover costs, we need help, we need a, some type of subsidy from you hospital slash health system, it becomes a, a proving up some of that information. And you and I have talked about like the proving up piece of it and sort of uh, what's commercially reasonable and and, and and having those discussions at the beginning. What have you seen? I mean, I have seen sort of true-ups happen, you know, look backs every month. I've seen lookbacks on a quarterly basis. I've seen lookbacks, you know that sort of end the year. Tell me kind of what you've seen and in, in, in does it happen? frankly, less frequently than that because you would think with that kind of skin in the game and with those the dollars involved with some of these subsidies that some oversight would be demanded, frankly, by the hospital and health system. Tell me what you're seeing with that.
1: Uh, yeah, and so, and if we can call it financial intimacy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go, rather than, yeah, no, I hear you.
1: Yeah, so I think for the practice, sharing as much information as possible about that financial situation is, is really important. And so from a from valuation perspective, and I'm sure from your perspective as well, where things get tricky is when a, a practice or even the hospital is not willing to share enough information to really see all sides and, and to, to answer the, the question. So then related to the reconciliation, which requires a lot of that sharing of information, that financial intimacy, from a reconciliation perspective, we're seeing mostly an annual reconciliation, but with no surprises along the way. So what do I mean by that? So that means everyone is looking throughout the year at what the run rate is of the subsidy compared to the payments that they're receiving from the hospital, so that when they get to the annual reconciliation, they are able to to justify, to explain, they know why they are different from what was originally set forth in, in the agreement perhaps. And because no one wants a surprise um, because the, the parties have worked very hard to come together to agree to that monthly subsidy amount, the the fixed payment, if you will, and then only to be surprised at the end of the year is then then very, very frustrating. So we mostly see an annual reconciliation, but I, I will say that we are seeing more often because of the time that it takes to negotiate through the reconciliation perhaps some of the the disagreements that occur along the way, and it's sometimes perhaps a a bunch of difficult conversations and it becomes uncomfortable, that we're seeing some organizations push out their reconciliation past a one-year period and trying to to fix that for for a two-year period. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but from our perspective to have a longer reconciliation period requires a more stable environment, a more stable operating and collecting and coverage model environment. And so the longer you push it out, the more stable that you need to be, which from from my perspective is getting more difficult to prove, especially in this this environment that we're in right now as professional collections continue to, to decline for these specialties.
0: No, I totally agree. And I think you know we had a lot of stability sort of in the past, frankly, pre No Surprises Act for emergency medicine. And frankly, anesthesia wasn't really even part of this because they were supporting themselves on what they were making or how they were operating pre No Surprises Act. But I think the no, I mean, to me, it's really been in the last year or so that things have gotten um, more incredibly volatile not only from an emergency medicine perspective with those changes but again with with anesthesia because you know the payer landscape is quite different the, the inability of those lines of business to bill the patient for the difference between what the payer was or was not paying i mean all that has changed so it's it's created i think much more volatility than anyone expected because i think people not only practices but also payers are really having to come to the table or really having to change past practices and i've seen some slowness in the change right So, you know, and I welcome, we can, let's get into some specific examples because I think fundamentally, you know, I I mentioned the Stark law and I mentioned the anti-kickback statute at the beginning. Commercial reasonableness is, is an aspect to those analyses. And when you're talking about paying a subsidy to a practice, you know, it's a financial relationship and it's a financial relationship that means that that practice is not through professional collections, obviously able to make itself whole or cover costs. And that's really the, the foundational understanding or reason for a subsidy is that, you know, we need the service, we hospital, we health system need this service and you practice or, or giving us information that shows that you cannot afford to supply it just, you know, within yourself. So we need, to, we need to come to the table, we need to help. And so it is, as we said, that financial intimacy, that collaboration that has to take place. But what's key in that analysis at the beginning is really an understanding of what is the service line at issue. Because you mentioned sort of main ones that you've seen. Um, I've seen some of those, I haven't seen others, but it happens in other areas as well. And when it happens with practices that are outside of more hospital-based practices like emergency medicine, like anesthesia, like hospitalists, it deserves a closer look. It deserves a proving up and documentation of what the need actually is. And the the scarcity, frankly, of that resource internally. Because some of these hospitals and health systems, and I'm sure you run into this, Angie, and I welcome your thoughts on this as well. These specialties are, are rare, um, or they're moving, or they're volatile, because of all the reasons that we talked about. And so there is a, there's a need to really to support that. So it's a, it's a different level, right? It's a different level of financial arrangement. It's a different level of financial intimacy, then you see sort of in a run of the mill sort of practice supports itself, hospital supports itself, and you move on with your day. These are needed things from a health system hospital perspective. What are your thoughts on that? And kind of what have you seen over time sort of maybe change or or be affected by things?
1: Absolutely. And most of it, it starts at the top of the income statement, right? With the practice. It's all it starts with that collections amount. And so in the current environment, as the collections are are declining, it, it, rule number one of this subsidy is to make sure that you understand what the true professional collections are. So as as we ran down that list of specialties, most likely to get a subsidy, the billing and collection process for these specialties is complex. I mean, anesthesia, oh my goodness, the, the complexity in the billing there. And so from a understanding perspective and a sharing of information perspective, between the practice and the hospital, the hospital, it would not be commercially reasonable for the hospital to pay the practice to have poor or subpar billing and collection performance. And so then you have to be able to share and demonstrate and and prove that uh, within the reconciliation. Then you create a solid commercial reasonableness argument for the arrangement of, yes, we can prove that they really cannot make it on their own without without support from the
0: hospital one of the things that i've seen and i wonder if you've seen different permutations or can interest again in your thoughts on this is you know if you are seeing collections issues on the practice side which frankly can happen it's as you said some of the billing is difficult and the collection piece is challenging the subsidy sort of provides a cushion to that practice. And so sometimes, you know, the concern going into it is you want to make sure that there's some incentive there to continue to collect and not just rely on the on the subsidy to sort of make up for, shall we say, less than adequate or business practices on the collection side. So have you seen because I've seen a lesser than, so talking about subsidies. Subsidy is, as you said, sort of expense minus collection, sort of in its purest form, right? What are your expenses? Let's minus out what your collections are. That's kind of the area that we need to subsidize as a hospital or health system. I've seen an assumption of, look, let's do a lesser than. So we're going to assume that you're going to collect at least X. So we're going to assume that the subsidy is going to be no more than whatever, you know, dollar figure, hate to quote the millions, but that's frequently what we're seeing, but X dollars or that uh, expense minus collection, but a lesser number. So tell me, tell me what you've seen to kind of control for some of that, the business practice
1: issue, shall we say? Yeah. So one of, the, one of the things that is increasing in popularity is creating some kind of a band around collections. The, the estimate going into the subsidy, calc- it's, an, it's an estimate. So we start with an estimate going into the subsidy calculation, and then we're seeing a trend to create a band around that collections amount. That's almost what I call the do nothing band. So if collections are X percent higher or X percent lower than that initial estimation, nothing changes in the subsidy reconciliation. Practice, you absorb the lesser collection up to a certain percentage, and hospital, you pay the subsidy amount even if the practice was able to collect a little bit more. So, of course, that setting of that percentage then becomes really important um, from a commercial reasonableness perspective, as well as from an FMB perspective, understanding that any increase in collection is likely to go to the, the compensation of the physicians. So then, of course, you have to be careful with that. So we're seeing an increase in, in trend related to that. One of the best things to look at is the net collections percentage. And have as part of the reconciliation process, the practice explaining or creating a, a threshold of if the net collections percentage falls below 95%, 96%, I believe 96% is one of the standards in the industry, falls below nine, below 96%, then what happens? Well, the hospital might not pay anymore as part of the reconciliation because then that would be an indication that the collections process is not as efficient as it could be. And so I think, and then payer mix, so that's something that you and I have talked about as well, looking at that payer mix and ensuring that the payer mix is going to drive the collections, right? And so if you have more self-pay, if you have more governmental payers, then, then likely you can expect that your, that your subsidy may be a little higher um, than, than what you want or, or what you've intended. So Jana, let's go from the revenue side of the, the subsidy calculation to the expense side of the calculation. So within the expenses, what are you seeing as some of the, the tripping points uh, with the, on the expense side that are creating problems and contractual arrangements or, or reconciliations?
0: Well, I think how the practice is sort of staffed, right? That can create not necessarily tripping points, but I would say points of discussion between how the practice has managed itself today and what the health system or hospital's expectation maybe with regard to some of those costs and, and, and to put a finer point on it, you know, physicians versus advanced practice professionals. So APPs, you know, does the mix make sense, not only from a quality of care perspective, right. And sort of the licensure requirements or requirements from a payer perspective, but also from a cost perspective, because you can, you know, um, I think gold standard is physicians for everything, right? Yay, love them, oh, wonderful care, yay, hi. But obviously, our APPs are knocking it out of the park as well. And so, making that transition from a practice perspective to the use of more APPs, I've seen as kind of a, a maybe a pain point, or maybe a you know maybe not that to be not quite as dramatic a point of discussion for wanting some transition in how things have happened in the past and, and the expectation on a go forward. And so trending wise, um, baking in some expectation for increased use of, of APPs on a go forward basis has been something that's, that's been quite discussed. The other thing that I've, that I've heard discussed, which I find interesting is also PTO, right? Expectations for time off For physicians and just different thought processes by the different specialties, frankly, about what is a reasonable amount of time off to be. And that trending, I think, frankly, you know, clinicians need time off um, depending upon the specialty, some more than others. So that's also been a point of discussion and really trying to have. Um, helpful to have a third party in there to kind of be a resource for the health system, hospital, and the physician group, and not so tied to, obviously, the physicians want their time off, um, and the hospital may have a different perspective on some of that. Have somebody to come in to say, look, here's what the trend is. Here's what the average is. Let's talk about what's reasonable in in this instance. I welcome your thoughts on that, too, sort of for tripping points in the discussion
1: absolutely so pto clearly commercially reasonable to allow the physician paid time off so that they can perform in an excellent manner in the in the hospital facility and in performing their services but then you do have to look at how many weeks are expected and is it within the norm or is it outside of the norm you know and, and to the extent that it is outside of the norm it's perfectly acceptable for the practice to continue to allow Paid time off in excess of what the industry norm may be, but then that's an adjustment in the compensation calculation within within the subsidy. And of course, then that it all starts around the coverage model itself, which you mentioned, uh, related to you know just the number of locations, the number of hours, the number of shifts that have to be covered in the emergency room. All of these things. That's that's the starting place, and then determining who's going to provide the services and at at what time, and then at what cost. And so then the other thing that because of the environment that we're in with physician, just it's difficult to find physicians. Physician recruiting continues to be just a, a stranglehold on our practices and on our hospitals to find providers to provide the service. So of course we're needing to consider locum tenants costs within the subsidy calculation. So Jana, what are you, what are, we're seeing that, what are you seeing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially with some of these increasing with certain areas, so anesthesia is an area which has had just high need because it's top of mind for me right now. And locums are have become very important because of a lot of movement of those individuals and because of a lot of changes related to the practice and also compensation, etc. And then it becomes the sharing of the cost. Is it shared? Is it something that, you know, the health system is expected to really, because of recruiting issues by the practice? And again, you know, I say this broadly, so this isn't just anesthesia-based, but again, this is just locum's cost generally. You know, how much of that is shared? Is all of it shared? Is there an expectation that the practice will build its practice. So we'll be employing more individuals long term so that that subsidy uh, related to the locums can be shared at some point or become frankly not important at some point. But you know that has been that's been a point that's been heavily discussed, right with obviously the, the hospital not wanting to pay as much on the locum side. But understanding, I think, in the end, based on physician input and practice input, look, we need help here. Because some of them, and especially from a geographic perspective, certain areas of the country are really struggling with staffing certain of these specialties. So how about you? What are you seeing from a locum's sharing or cost perspective?
1: So one of the key questions around locum's is, is the locum's coverage for a new service additional coverage or is it to replace a physician or other provider that was already within the subsidy calculation? If it's already within the subsidy calculation, then really part of that locum tenant's cost is already built into the subsidy. And so then it should, I, the hospital and practice then need to negotiate how they're going to share the incremental cost of that locum's who will, cost more than likely the provider that's that's in the subsidy calculation already for a new service that's a whole different question right because it's extended it's coverage not already considered in the subsidy analysis so then it's a new discussion as to how the new service is going to be provided so what sometimes we will do in some of our calculations is we'll do a an additional financial assistance calculation showing what happens if you add an anesthetizing location. If you add coverage hours, what is the incremental subsidy for a new provider? And you could do the same calculation using the locums costs um, because, again, you have to consider the collections that the practice is going to get on that locums position. continues to be a hot topic, and locum tenants costs, of course, continue to rise. Another item that we continue to see related to professional services and the cost of of providers are recruiting incentives. So what are you seeing there?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So they exist because it's necessary, as I mentioned, You know, certain of these, it's certain, especially certain specialties are really running into a lack of providers in, in those areas. So they're needing to recruit, they're wanting help doing that because obviously they're already, typically already in a subsidy type or, or arrangement with the hospital or health system. So because there is this pain and we've seen it again right now um, and because of the NSA and those specialties that I had previously mentioned, you know, some of the that recruitment and those costs are being shared, right? So either shared or taken on by the hospital or health system. There are really dependent on, in part on state law, some, if you're helping from a hospital or health system, query whether or not that affects your ability the, the non-solicitation provisions and your arrangements or the potentially the non-compete arrangements between that practice and the physician but without getting too much in the weeds there I just mentioned that as, as sort of one of the things that's discussed when those conversations are, are happening are you seeing that are you seeing this this recruitment be part of what's subsidized in in your world?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, best practice on recruiting incentives is always to have some kind of a clawback on that provider. It's not free money just to to come in and and work for a year, that it should really be amortized over a certain period of time in the life of the arrangement between the the practice and and the provider. And I think, too, a point on, on recruitment incentives, especially as it relates to CRNAs, because CRNAs are, are, increasingly difficult to find and recruit, Uh, compensation is increasing rapidly uh, for CRNAs, is that I I think new employers of CRNAs need to keep in mind that many of the CRNAs in the market now are working under independent contractor models and so there might need to be some education between the compensation that they're receiving now as a a fully loaded independent contractor so the compensation that they're getting would include a consideration for benefits that they have to pay on their own both sides of, of employer employer and employee, payroll taxes, et cetera, but when they become employed by your practice uh, or your health system for that matter, those benefits are taken care of by you or a portion of those benefits are taken care of by you. So it's just good to remember that you might have to to help them through that reconciliation process because to them the compensation is gonna just immediately look lower and I'm doing air quotes and people can't see me do air quotes, but it looks, it looks lower. And so you just need to provide that reconciliation for them and help them rationalize and, and think and think through that.
0: So I want to say you mentioning that sort of reminds me yet again, as I am frequently reminded when dealing with these types of arrangements, of the administrative burden related to not only, well, the prep time, right? Take your time to really do the analysis with somebody on on your financial side if you're a hospital health system, but also potentially, I think, and frequently beneficial with somebody outside like you guys, evaluation consultant, to really get the experiential understanding that you guys have of what is sort of typical or what you've seen before to be able to benefit the client, and also from a finance perspective, those are the people who are frequently having to do the reconciliation. And the more complicated these types of arrangements are, the more painful they are on the admin side. I again, I I, I welcome your thoughts with re, with regard to that. It's it's a challenge.
1: I agree, agree. And that time equates to more administrative cost, HR burden. And, and all of that, which then gets us into our next topic on the income statement for the subsidy. So we've talked about collections. We've talked about provider costs and, and benefits. And now let's get into the administrative costs. So, Gina, uh, I know you and I have talked about- Ugh, I have a visceral reaction. <laughs> okay. I know where you're going to go.
0: I know where you're going to go. You're going to go to profit margin. Yes. So I find this fascinating because, you know, from frequently, my perspective is that this is really supporting costs. This is covering costs. That is the intent of this arrangement. Profit margin? Please tell me your experience with regard to this, because I find this fascinating that profit margin is being incorporated into a subsidy arrangement.
1: Yes. So if you think about it from the practices perspective, and if we can put on a evaluation hat for a minute. Yeah. Yes. You know, this is an arrangement between a willing buyer and a willing seller and the willing seller of the services is it would be commercially reasonable for that practice as a for-profit independent practice to expect some level, reasonable level of profit margin. Now, so, and, and that's really important because from the hospital or health system side of this, where they can see their profit margins dwindling and, and becoming less and, and lower every single day, then it really becomes a question of how much profit margin is commercially reasonable um, to expect,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: number one, number two, how much of that profit margin really is somewhat of a buffer between the estimates that the practice has provided in their categorization of expenses of other administrative expenses. So, you know, knowing that they've provided an estimate, it's not going to line up dollar for dollar to that estimate. So how much, how much wiggle room is, could be in, in those numbers. Many times, I've seen it go both ways in the practice providing information. Sometimes they'll just lay it out. You know, here's our line item and we'll profit margin. And it's right there for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. Other times they've built it into their administrative expense load and you don't you don't see it. Uh, so it is it is a question. It is definitely something from a valuation perspective, from an administrative perspective to be aware of. How much is it? Is it there? Is it not there? What's reasonable? Um, and if it's unreasonable, then an adjustment would need to be made from a financial assistance calculation perspective, because you have to assume that to the extent that that profit margin is real, and it ends up, well, then you have to question, well, then why did you have a subsidy to begin with? And where is that really going? Is it, where is it going is it going to end up back in the the hands of the owners of the physician practice uh, and again is that is that reasonable so there's there's a lot to think about so on profit margin and i don't think it's a a bright line. no, I, I think it's a great. Yeah. I
0: think that's and I think your your commentary around it much more understandable from my perspective and thinking about your bands that you described earlier and really that it is kind of a, a proxy for that type of more nuanced subsidy arrangement, right And I think that that you know that makes it super understandable very very helpful for me to understand. So talk to me cuz I know from an admin perspective scribes are super important to a lot for uh, in the emergency room. They're used for other specialties as well. I'm just I just see them all the time for them. So incorporating the call scribes. Have you seen that on the admin side? Tell me tell me what you're seeing.
1: Absolutely. And then it becomes a question as to commercial reasonableness, right? How many scribes and what's the compensation level of the, of the scribe? You don't want to be paying a scribe the same level as an RN or or an APP, you know, it's so you really get down to cost benefit as it relates to the scribes and really lining that up with the number of providers. But it's it's a necessary cost in some scenarios. You just have to under understand why and how they're being used. Uh, and think through the cost. You know that's a trend, and like you said, we mostly see them in the emergency room. But with that, Jana, what other trends are you seeing as it relates to to subsidies? I know that we've talked about a, a few of those recently. Things that we're seeing more often.
0: You know, I think we've seen a big, again, specific to me, specific geographic regions of the country, big hikes in subsidies. Like marked differences in subsidies, and again, I think in looking at it and really, and I know my clients are open to those discussions uh, with the physicians who are, you know, who may be struggling given sort of the regulatory or, or, or frankly, now financial. So it used to be regulatory, right? NSA, or no surprises that came out. <laughs> now it's like these these impacts are not. Regulatory issues, their financial issues that are impacting them and so coming to I've seen a, a very large spike in anesthesia subsidies recently, and what those are looking like and having to come to the table in a way that I think is, frankly, not you know, they've existed in the past, but this is a much bigger, I think, in, again, certain areas, a bigger ask than what has happened before. And concerns on the, on, I think, a lot from the hospital or health system side about whether or not that's fair market value, whether or not are they, because this is hiking like it is and spiking like it is, is this, should they be worried about fair market value related to these subsidies and this being this being um, reasonable. I personally, as, and as you know, and as probably most people who are listening to this can gather, I'm very comfortable talking and bringing in valuation experts into arrangements because I'm a lawyer. I can look at sort of what the risk is from a legal perspective under Stark and Kickback, but from a evaluation of fair market value or frequently looking at commercial reasonableness, although that is something that can happen within the system and without, you guys are frequently helpful and sort of because of your experience and kind of understanding what is commercial reasonable as well. I bring you in. And with these, with the changes that are happening to me, that's speaking just, top of head right top of mind related to this is that's happening right now how about with you what are you saying
1: you're absolutely right geographic hot spots are real and they happen it with specialties in certain markets and uh, the, the trick with that is to uh, really know your local market and when the Practice When the physicians are describing their difficulty recruiting in that local market, and they bring forward local market comparable data points, uh, you want them to do that. You want them to share that information. And to the extent possible, you want them to prove it. You want them to provide the offer letter. You want them to provide the information supporting those other local offers that are that are perhaps higher than than what you anticipated but they but they are real and they do happen they for those that are going through them right now that are listening they don't last forever it will seem like for but they do not last forever um, and and the market will adjust the market will eventually adjust the providers will be attracted to the area because of the increase in compensation And the the supply and demand economic forces will work to bring things back to where they need to be. Um, So as painful as it is, (laughs) it will will eventually uh, level out and and go away. And because of this, where possible, in states where it's possible, we're seeing more employment of hospital-based specialties than we have in the past, um, which is very interesting because then all of a sudden a hospital or a hospital-based medical group is now being asked to bill for, ex- we've used anesthesia as an example a lot today, but I'm gonna use it again. They're being, now they're having to bill for anesthesia services within their medical group that they haven't had to do before. It's a new skill set, it's a risk area, and while it makes sense to um, employ these physicians to help them stabilize, to help the hospital and the community stabilize the service from a need perspective, it does create some additional administrative burden and and educational burden, frankly, um, to understand how these practices work.
0: Yeah, amen. Well, and and amen, amen. Because you know, part of this is in understanding people. People say, okay, yeah, well, you have to bill for it, but that's a benefit, right? Benefit billing is like a benefit now to the hospital. Not, mm, yeah. So again, you've been subsidizing the practice, so that indicates that there is that this may be a bit of a loss leader. But it does stabilize, as you mentioned, the service for the the community, for the hospital. It stabilizes the service from a compliance perspective. Please, as you're bringing in new billing services, please get experts in those areas. Please audit. You know, this compliance hat is on for me. Um, outside counsel, please bring in some you know, and, and, and inform all of those different layers in your organization about the changes and bring them on board holistically to, to make sure that those are supported. So you bring in the billing expertise, you bring in the audit expertise, you are sensitive to how this is going to change and how you need to kind of take a pulse on it, probably on a more frequent basis than you're taking the pulse on stuff that you've been dealing with in the past, because this is new. And it's challenging. So, yeah, amen. Absolutely. Amen.
1: We've been really quiet about radiology as a as a hospital based service. So, what we're seeing in radiology, and then I'll I'll turn it over to you to to comment and, and explain what you're seeing, is that radiology in general has not been subsidized, but We're seeing a bit of a shift where some general radiology practices are coming forward now, uh, where they perhaps had not in the past. And interventional radiology is very interesting, specifically in instances where you need the service. Interventional radiologists provide a very specific service. They they take a, a unique call coverage panel, and so, they are needed in perhaps rural areas or areas where the uh, community cannot support the full service of an interventional radiologist, but yet the community needs the volume isn't the volume isn't there to support uh, the full compensation of that of that radiologist. So we're actually seeing some. Interventional radiology subsidy questions come forward, um, and you know, thinking through does it make sense to subsidize the interventional radiologist and for how much? I, I think the trick there is really determining the need, supporting the need, and then also determining is there something else that that interventional radiologist could do when they're not providing interventional services? Could they also be providing and supporting? general radiology or other areas, um, just to ensure that you're maximizing the resource, the physician resource, but I would love to hear your, your comments and what you're seeing there.
0: No, I agree. I mean, I think it's an agree with the need, agree with the fact that it's coming up and that we hadn't really seen it in the past. And I think it foundationally that what you mentioned is again, take it back. Take it back to the beginning, take it back to, you know, is it commercially reasonable to be subsidizing it? What is the need? What are your other possible avenues for service providers, right? Are you in, you know, an area that has limited uh, availability of specialists that do a very needed service, as you mentioned? It comes back down to basics. So having those very detailed discussions, frankly, IR is is a procedure list. So in the past, that's been unusual to see as a subsidized arrangement. But again, it all, it really does come back to what is the need and does the facility need that service and how frequently and really getting down to brass tacks, so to speak, on the, that, that very detailed analysis.
1: So uh, Jana, I think we've covered it. Do you have any thoughts before we wrap it up?
0: Hey, yes, Angie, sort of as a final thought, really these valuation concepts that we've been talking about address a part of the overall analyses of compensation arrangements under both the federal physician self-referral law. um, It's commonly known as the Stark law and the anti-kickback statute, as well as their state corollaries. Just please take the time to carefully, folks, please take the time to carefully walk through those analyses on the front end. The federal physician self-referral law um, uh, is a strict liability statute. So it's really better to address any issues before the first dollar is paid than to have to deal with penalties down the road. Also, please discuss these laws with someone who is familiar with those particular health care laws, just because they are um, very complicated, Angie, as you and I have discussed many times. I think the other thing that I would say is um, we welcome people's topic suggestions for future podcasts um, and frankly, future presentations that we do under Let's Talk Compliance. So please reach out to both Angie and I by email or give us a call and let us know any thoughts that you have for the future. So Angie, thank you as always for doing this with me. I um, I enjoy our talks very much, enjoy the topic, so thank you.
1: Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Thank you so much for joining me today uh, for, for going through this topic together. And Jana and I, on behalf of Foley and Lardner and PYA, want to thank all of you for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. We encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. Please visit Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtodayalloneword.com and pyapc.com. On behalf of Angie Caldwell and Jana Kalarek, thank you.
0: Thank you.